0: I had this odd feeling of feeling very safe tonight. Feeling very safe while I was sitting. And that was kind of an odd feeling since I also had the anticipation of saying, sharing my stray thoughts tonight and not having a clue about what I would share. So it was a little odd to feel so safe. But I think there was something about the general trend of my thoughts that gave rise to that feeling of safety. And it was, I think it was the reflection today on the passing of my first insight meditation teacher, Stephen Levine. Actually, I think he died yesterday. Whichever day was the 17th, I'm sorry. I've lost track but uh, when I thought about Stephen today and I, I, I don't think I'll give a whole night on Stephen Levine because many of you may not even know who he is we have many generations of, of yogis here but he was he was actually a, um, a really cool guy who was very um, He was very settled in himself, he was was not busy trying to impress anyone, and he was was really in his own groove. He was part of, maybe part of that groove was he was he was in the middle of the beat generation, which was really all about the groove, all about getting into the flow. All about, as Alan Watts said, to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, and to see that the place where it's at is simply here and now. And you can talk about these things, but Stephen Levine had this kind of quality about him, and a very lilting quality in his voice, and super intelligent, but uh, I... um, as it's, as it's happened to me in many cases, I stumbled on Stephen. In fact, uh, some of you may know that we, I sometimes talk about this, we held a 60th birthday party for me a couple of years ago, here in this room, and I was described as the Forrest Gump, A. Forrest Gump of the Dharma. Scene, because I would just, by accident, end up meeting all, all, measure, all manner of different teachers. And in this case, I got a call from a friend, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, I got a call from a friend that says, you know, there's this guy Ram Dass, and he's doing a, a retreat, and many of you have heard of Ram Dass, and I didn't really know who Ram Dass was at this point, It's the mid-70s, and um, I do a retreat, uh, I, I get this call saying, he's doing this retreat called a mature ashram, where you meditate and you sing and you do yoga and you run around in the hills and up in New Mexico. And so I was in Tucson and I was kind of lost, aimless a little bit, but very, uh, very sincere in my desire to find some kind of reliable place to rest in myself. I didn't even know I was a seeker, but I was, I was hungry. And I said, sure. So I got in the car and drove up to to this place called Lama Foundation which turned out to be a, a kind of spiritual home for me where I both did, I sat retreats and I led retreats uh, till the end of the 1980s and then uh, they had a fire and then I, I never really went back to read any more retreats but when I went up to this retreat I I met Ram Dass and I was everybody was, he was the big guru of the day everybody was really taken with him. And I was interested in him and what his teachings were. And all of that was wonderful. But then he said, I have two teachers who are, who are offering different meditation practices here. One of them was a woman named Soma Krishna, a lovely woman who, whose expertise was teaching people to uh, climb a golden ladder and meet your spirit guides and and do kind of creative visualization. And that was kind of interesting, and I saw some interesting people who showed up as my spirit guides in my imagination. But then he says, the other teacher is Stephen Levine, and he's teaching this thing called Vipassana, or insight meditation. I didn't know what that was at the time. I went, he taught, and it was his... His words and his practice was the ignition that lit the flame that brings us together tonight. We do not exist here independent from that, that happening, that meeting that happened 30, whatever, 38 years ago. And essentially all he asked me to do, which is what I ask everyone to do each week, is, is wake up. Pay you have this thing called awareness. It's given. You can't not have it. It's closer than your breath. It's it's always already. But it's, it's so colored and obscured by, by your mental habits that you don't even know you're aware. You don't even appreciate that you have this incredible gift as the natural state of your own mind essential nature, primordially aware. And he said, but you know, if I just say that, you know, you'll just do what you do, which is just get absorbed in the imagined past, the imagined future, stories about yourself and everyone else, how things should be, could be, would be, a lot of hope, a lot of strain, a lot of struggle. Instead, I want you to just pay attention. Gain enough composure. Put your attention on your, on your body, on your breath, which is just what we did tonight. Put your mind in your body and your body in your mind. Those aren't his words. But he basically said, pay attention to your body first. And lo and behold, by having my attention in the general present, I started to notice Finally, instead of being completely carried away by the stream of distress, stream of thoughts, I started noticing. And I was so amazed at how absolutely mentally ill I was. I could not believe the way without any prompting at all. This was my first experience of selflessness because I saw, I sat there and I'm doing this little simple thing and one thought arises, the next one comes, the next one comes, and chains of associations until there are these little streams, these rivers of, of connected thoughts. And it was happening all by itself. And I was just shocked at the proliferation of this, this, uh, these chains of association. And I was hooked. And in fact, I was so hooked that, um, for a variety of reasons, part of it was the the place at Lama Foundation. I have to put in a plug for Lama. It was it was that place that was so pristine,ly beautiful, and so silent in a way. Trees, the aspen trees flickering in the light, and the streams and and everything, and to experience the contrast between this this gentle, gradually, gradually unfolding nature and the maniac that was playing in my mind just told me that I was really onto something that I could probably use. So the mixture of Stephen Levine, this place and this time uh, was it, is what really ignited my whole interest in practice. And I became so confident in Stephen's understanding and in his teaching that I had literally moved my life to Santa Cruz, California the following autumn and started sitting with him weekly at his, sitting, at his weekly sitting group in, in Santa Cruz. You know, he'd been a Bay Area person, not born here, he was born on the East Coast, but he had uh, been a founder or a contributor to the San Francisco Oracle, which was a beat journal that was exquisite, it had these beautiful graphics and, and it included Allen Ginsberg stuff and Allen Watts and all these beat people. And he had then moved to, he had gotten involved with the, the world of Neem Karoli Baba, who was the guru of Ramdas, And he had been the uh, main support person for what was called the, the Hanuman Tape Library. Kind of archive of all the teachings of uh, of Ramdas and um, and the and Neem Baba and that whole scene. So I had the good fortune of hanging out with him for a while, and then uh, of course reading his books and and seeing him through the years, and then spending a lot of time with his son, who is now uh, the founder of Against the Stream, that has a community here in San Francisco, uh, Noah Levine. He's written many books, and so old friend and, and someone I worked with a lot when he was just starting to, to uh, teach. So anyway, I have a lot of gratitude for, for um, Stephen, and I was thinking today about what his where his attention went, and what allowed him to, to be in that groove, to to feel okay in his skin and one of the things that he came face to face with, that he turned his attention to, as many of you know who know his work, is he turned his attention to the reality of of sickness, old age and death. His whole, a lot of his adult life was devoted to helping people who were either processing their own uh, dying or people who were supporting other people who who are dealing with, with uh, sickness, old age, and death. Uh, support people, just anyone who is interested. Wrote beautiful books on, on a book called Who Dies? And then one of his, his great books that many people, and I highly recommend this, I've recommended it to thousands of people over the years, uh, his book called One Year to Live, that, um, that has the effect of clearing away everyone else's voices of who you should be, could be, who you're supposed to be, all of that. And just points to what would you do, as, the question that I always ask myself was, what would I do if nobody was looking? Something like that. And so that I can somehow clarify in this book of, of letting death sit on your shoulder as an advisor, as a reminder that this, these moments are precious And the conditions that you find yourself in are precious. They can change on a dime. Both outer and inner conditions, resources and weather, and everything can just turn on a dime. And to take advantage of this precious life that you have, these precious circumstances, and to know that whatever you do right here uh, matters. It has every moment here you're planting a seed that doesn't just affect your mind, which it inevitably does, but it affects every single person in this world, just like that that one little meeting changed the the course of history, really. For me and anybody I've known has been affected by it, and anybody, you know, we are all affecting everyone. And so little, appreciating the preciousness of our life in that way, and understanding that what we do with our life, what we do with our thoughts, what we do with our words, what we do with our actions really matters if we care. And if you do appreciate life, if you do get in touch with the preciousness of life, you will also be in touch with the... Uh, if you are present enough in your life, you cannot help but care. I think I talked a little bit about that last week. It's coming back. But I, you know, I can't help but care if I'm present. And So Stephen's emphasis on on living the life that is congruent with you. Living the life that is truthful, that is non-harming, orienting your life to taking advantage of this preciousness and not just sleepwalking your way through it. And if you do that, you can only unfold. You can only be part, be an an element of nature unfolding. You you cannot be caring if you are inhabiting and living a congruent life. You cannot be carrying the excessive burden of an imposition of that intense inner critic and that that intense trying to get someplace this become someone you you can't help but but just squeeze the immediacy out of life because you know that everything will be gone. you don't want to miss it. you don't want to miss it and at least reflecting on death and dying just clarifies whether or not you are living congruently so he had that quality of congruence had that quality of what i what i think of as inner safety you know safety with oneself and when we reflect in the traditional sense on the the trying to arouse that feeling of goodwill toward ourselves and others, one of the traditional reflections is, may I feel safe from inner harm. May I be safe from outer harm, which is another way of saying, may I feel safe with myself. May I feel safe with others. So if I am living a congruent life, just in my own groove, I naturally, if I'm not being so externally dependent for what I'm supposed to do, since I only have a year to live, you know, in that that view that we never know. I'm gonna I'm gonna be in my own room. And the more I think about that, the safer I feel. Or I don't have to I don't have to adjust myself to fit in. So much of our Struggle, all that oppression that we feel, that inner critic, all that stuff is because there's an idea, there's some kind of idealized model of what we should be or who we should become and how we should do it. And then not only do I have that model, but then I have to actually figure it out. And so there's a, there's a kind of tendency devote a lot of attention to fitting in. Gotta fit in. And Stephen Levine was one of those people that like I said, he beat to his own drum. And the interesting thing about those who beat to their own drum they realize this was a big help for me when I realized this, that I don't fit in. There's nobody like me and there's nobody like you there is nobody i can't be like anybody else i am just no diff- no better no less than than the trees each tree in the forest that is unique but unique and so i i can't i it's not about fitting in when i realized that i didn't fit in i felt much safer with myself and the, the paradox is that once I realized that I didn't fit in and I was a little bit more in my own groove, found my own voice, so to speak, then the world started adjusting to me. And it, I, it, it made a shift from me constantly being that hungry ghost that's looking for someone to validate me and fill that little hole inside of insecurity and insufficiency Instead, like Hafez says, uh, why not become the one with the full moon in each eye who's always saying to every person what they're longing to hear? People then, you actually end up without doing anything in particular. And you think of Stephen, he didn't do anything in particular different than what was natural to him. Yet just by listening, that deep listening, of his own groove, his own beat, his own practice, his own contemplation, his heart opening, his inclination to turn toward death. It became the cause of the world to adjust to his understanding, be affected by it. So I, you know, I'm deeply indebted for his groove and his impact on me. And so much, and I'm so happy for his impact on the world. So if you haven't been exposed to Stephen Levine, I highly recommend that you pick up his books. And I think it's especially, his first book, his first Dharma book, meditation book, is especially relevant to, to this process of both the learning of the systematic unfolding of meditation practice, but also in its title it tells you that that we need, our practice is not about becoming, as Ajahn Semedo says, becoming the great Buddha of the age, spreading love throughout the world, being invited to great international Buddhist conferences. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend the international Buddhist conferences. That's not the point. He says, it's being an earthworm who knows only two words, let yourself be, let go. And and the title of Stephen's book, it's called A Gradual Awakening. In the title itself, it takes away the oppression that we feel by thinking we torment ourselves with having to get someplace to do it now. And of course we have to have a sense of urgency because we don't know when life will end. But it's meant to be a gradual process, a gradual unfolding. It's not unlike the way that a a seed is watered and then you can't make it grow. It has to do it organically. Just gentle nurturing, a gradual unfolding. A gradual awakening. Well let's um, let's just reflect on Stephen Levine and, and then of course another person I couldn't help but bring into the evening and David Bowie. Talk about somebody in their own groove, somebody who's not trying to adjust and fit in. And look at the way the world has adjusted to his model. It's so beautiful. It is so special. When somebody says, this is who and what I am, I'm willing to stand alone in the truth instead of, oh, I'm to try to be just the same kind. I'm going to be just like everybody else. fitted. fit in. Be a good, obedient meditator, or whatever it is. Hopefully, from some of what I'm saying, I'm not sure I'm making making any sense, but but tune into your groove. And to me, the best way to do that is to stop. Is to feel your groove. To put your mind in your body, and your body in your mind. And to find that groove that goes beyond your personality, your name, your history, but doesn't exclude any of those things, but but is here, fully alive, beyond any concept. And then feel the different grooves that are the result of what you have experienced, your traumas. Everyone unique experiences. Your race. Your gender. Your orientation. Whatever it is. Feel the effects of all of that. That's your group. Doesn't feel or look or it won't be feel exactly like anybody else. And life won't move through you exactly like it does through everyone else. That may sound all too general, but it's a good start. Just here where you are, being as you are. And then, I know, from, at least for me, when I'm in the. It's funny, my whole body's doing this kind of groove thing tonight. It's a little fizzle. It's like I've plugged into the beat <laughs> It's so odd, it feels like I'm, I'm being inhabited by something. <laughs> But when I, when I do settle into my own groove, it is amazing how anything and everything that I thought I had to figure out doesn't have to be figured out. That I am then available to be informed by what's here. And when I'm, what I mean by being informed by what here, what's here is, I may feel in this sense of immediacy, I may feel this, this sense of, oh, there's something I haven't done that I needed to do. Or there's someone I need to talk to who I haven't talked to. There's a, something I need to complete that I didn't complete. All of it shows up in real time. While I'm trying to figure everything out, that intuition, that intelligence, that discernment, that creativity that I so want to tap into gets obscured. And I'm run then by my ego body or my fear body that is always in a, in a state of, of fight, or of flight, freeze. and. By, um, by trusting a little bit in both this immediacy, in this body, in this awareness, I, I find, I, re- I reclaim that groove. I reclaim the, riches, the richness. As Thich Han Hanh says, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child reclaim your heritage. And then I realize I don't really need to and neither do you. You don't need much more than what's happening right this moment. And the truth is, you can't do anything about the last one, it's gone, and the next one hasn't happened yet. But you can do a lot about this one. Because there will be what shows up here, and then there will be how it is that you meet what shows up. And we practice mindful attention and loving kindness so that we can meet what shows up the, the only thing that's actually real in our experience. We can meet it with, with uh, awareness and kindness intelligence. Don't have to go anywhere for that. I know there are a few people who've just come off of retreat and last week I came off of a retreat at Spirit Rock and over the years this has been a kind of halfway house for people coming off retreats <laughs> But the biggest thing in daily life, the biggest thing coming off of a retreat is, how am I going to fit my, my practice into this big life with all its stresses? And, and of course that triggers, tends to trigger a lot of anxiety because then we picture the whole thing that I have to deal with. And then I become this little person going out into this big life with all these stressful problems and I don't even realize unless I've been really mindful of it I don't even realize I've just created a whole identity of you I've created a whole imaginary reality and then freaked out about it and meanwhile I haven't gone one, I haven't left the present moment, I've just been lost, I'm right here right where I was the whole time, nothing happened but my I just went through hell and back and so I, so over the years I saw. Oh, that's another one of the little ego preoccupations: is tr- figuring out how to take things out and get somewhere. It's always about going, always about going. And remember what the Buddha said. I've been repeating this a lot lately. He's when asked, "How can you come to the end of the world?" Remember we talked about the fathom-long body line in the world. He says can you come to the end of the world by going? And he was asked this, and the Buddha said, no, you cannot come to the end of the world by going. But then, paradoxically, he said, but only those who come to the end of the world become free. But we realize, maybe you realize from that, that the end of the world is right here. The end of the me making and the my making and the I making and the storytelling and that whole little drama that we made real because we weren't presently aware that our mind was thinking. We were lost in that little dream of taking my little practice into my big life. Instead of that whole life, that whole big life is just unfolding present moments. Nothing more than this one and then another one, and another one, another one, another one. And that that going is just an idea. Having been somewhere is another idea. We're always right where we are. So I reframe this, and to me the, the groove of somebody like David Bowie just being himself, or Stephen Levine, is that you don't integrate your little practice into the big life. You don't figure out where you're going. You bring your life, your big life, into your practice, into your groove, into the place where it's at, which is simply your... So it has taken so much stress out of my life to realize I don't have to integrate, I don't have to... I don't have to do everything that I think I need to do. I just need to stay where I am. And everything unfolds from here. A gradual unfolding, a gradual awakening. I'm informed by if I feel super insecure right here, if I'm feeling insecurity, I don't need to go somewhere (laughs) to, to feel less secure. I need to attend to that insecurity with love and kindness right here. If I see that I'm, my mind is confused and I need that, I'm gonna say, okay, I need to just calm down a little bit. I need to maybe just feel a simple sensation. I can do that, that's not confusing. Let me just feel my breath, that's not confusing. Or if I feel I see that over and over into this unfolding present I'm seeing this ill will, feeling irritated with everyone. The intelligence that's available to me in awareness is going to say, Oh, there you must be there must be something you're not accepting, something that's hard to feel. Let me stop for a moment. And if nothing more, let me feel the pain of, of irritation and let it crack my heart, at least be merciful to myself because I'm so irritating to myself and to everyone else. You know, so how far did I have to travel to do any of that? Remember that ryokan, I'll end with this. Buddha is your mind and body. These are interdependent. Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever run? So let's just arrive here, dig the present, groom the eternal now, and discover again and again and again that the place where it's at, in the words of Alan Watts, the place where it's at is Simply here and now. And just for the sake of something fun, let's just remove the word here and let's remove the word now and rest our weary minds. May all beings put their trust in the unfolding present. May all beings trust awareness. May all beings be devoted to truth, congruence. And if there has been any benefit to us sitting together tonight, finding our groove, may any benefit, any fruit, any goodness, any blessings that may have arisen from our time together be shared with all beings everywhere, shared and sent with a deep wish that all beings and know happiness and the causes of happiness be free of suffering and the causes of suffering that all beings grow in serenity, equanimity toward the inevitable changes, joys, sorrows, pleasant and unpleasant experiences near and far. May all beings find a, a resting place of freedom and ease which is the natural state of our own mind. Stay where you are. I don't mean literally. Very nice evening, and thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity, and uh, just a oh, sorry, I forgot a quick announcement. I will be starting a leading a retreat next next. Uh-